You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity. I'm Healthicity's Senior Compliance Executive. And one of the most enjoyable parts of what I do is I get to talk to compliance experts um, at conferences and on the phone, and I just really enjoy picking their brain. And today, we have a brain for sure. Her name is Wendy Epley, and she's an expert an expert in export control uh, when it comes to compliance. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks. Um, one thing that we do, Wendy, before we kind of jump into the topic is we uh, want our guests to introduce themselves and, and tell our listeners a little bit about maybe your compliance background or you know how you ended up where you are and what you're doing today in the field of compliance and specifically with export controls. That uh, sounds good. I hope we have enough time for all of that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll be brief. Um, so my name is Wendy Epley and I am president of Epley Consulting, which helps organizations to strengthen their compliance programs from a, um, process-based approach. Um, I use methods that are known by Six Sigma practitioners and, um, I have a master's of science degree in regulatory trade compliance. I have a bachelor of science degree in global business. And I'm also certified as an export compliance professional in both the Export Administration Regulations, or EAR for short, and the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, or it's also referred to as the ITAR. Um, and I'm in my 12th year of this very fascinating field. Yeah. And um, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, was, I was just going to go on to say, uh, you know, I got into this field um, – I guess you could say serendipitously while I was working at Honeywell Aerospace. Okay. Um, export control, uh, it really was not, export controls was just not something that I had any real knowledge about before then. And I think probably most of our listeners could even say 12 years ago, they didn't even know what export controls were, but I could be wrong. Right. Um, and, and when I was given that role to handle export controls for the engineering test services group, there was no easing into it. Um, this was my dad threw me into the deep end of the swimming pool kind of, of role where I was tasked with classifying 8,000 parts, components, and assemblies, along with 6,000 technical drawings and specifications. And there was a three-month um, time crunch period that I had to get that all done in because there was a factory that was moving overseas. Right. And my mentor at Honeywell told me, either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. And well, it only took me about two months to realize this was something I really loved. So that's when I started learning all that I could and getting involved with various organizations and then subscribing to listservs. And after um, a few years of doing that, I was hired by the University of Miami to be their first export compliance officer and establish and manage their export compliance program. And after several years there, New York University poached me 
and I became their first import and export compliance officer, which also included their global campuses in Shanghai and Abu Dhabi. And then in 2016, I've been a part of the export compliance program here at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Yeah, and we, you and I met at a research compliance conference where this export controls is a very important topic. And uh, I listened to, to Wendy and her co-presenter, and I thought, this is a great presentation. I jumped up and gave you my card, and I said, would you please be a guest? And you were kind enough to agree. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing some of your time today. I thank you for inviting me. It, it was a great conference, and export controls uh, is something that is important for everybody, regardless of what field you're in. Yeah, and what 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 I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about today, because a lot of our listeners um, – you know, we're mainly in the healthcare space, and your presentation focused a little bit about export controls in the healthcare space. But before we get specific to healthcare, can you maybe just describe what is export controls? I mean, compliance officers that aren't maybe at a university or working for a technical company, uh, you know, as you described, might not know just what does it mean in general? If you hear export control compliance, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's Yeah, I kind of get that deer in the headlight looks every time somebody asks me, what do you do? And I say export controls. Right. And I'm like, okay. Um, but export controls, they affect every organization in every industry or business sector, however you want to identify that. And regardless if it's a product or a service and whether that product or service ever even leaves the United States. Right. And this is something that's hard for, for people to imagine since they hear the word export and think, well, I don't ship anything out of the country, so export controls don't apply to me. Exactly. And that's um, not true. No, not at all. And so when you hear export controls, it's referring to a very complicated network of federal agencies and regulations that are interconnected to regulate or control how things are to be protected. And so that is... Um, in order that they they are not used in a way that would cause harm, whether to people or even national security interests. Um, We have um, these laws and regulations control technologies, they control information, and even services to prohibited parties, regardless of where those persons are located, including if they're here within the United States. That's right. That's right. And how how might that apply now... um, in kind of the healthcare space. So, you know, we're not in healthcare, we're not making jet engines and, and those types of things. So what, how does that apply in healthcare? (laughs) Great question. For healthcare institutions, export control laws and regulations that are likely to be most prominent in the day-to-day activities will be those under um, four different um, Uh, agencies. It would be either under the jurisdiction of the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, which are military inherent items, the Export Administration Regulations, which are the commercial or dual-use items. Dual-use items are those that are commercial, but they can also be applied in a military uh, setting as well. Um, Then you have the Foreign Assets Control Regulations, which has to do with sanctions programs, And then, of course, um, an area that your listeners are likely more familiar with is the Food and Drug Administration, which is where we have our medical devices and drugs and other items that that may be coming into play. Yeah. Now for – go ahead. No, go please. Go ahead. Um, Well, I was just going to continue. Now, 
it's unlikely that healthcare institutions in general would be involved with projects or products that are subject to the ITAR, the military inherent items. But it still is possible. Um, for example, uh, a physician might be using on a trauma patient a forward-looking infrared thermal imaging camera, and he might be using that to detect acute compartment syndrome. Um, another example could be research being conducted to develop atropine injections that are designed to counter nerve agent poisoning. Um, Or even another example might be where assistance is being provided to a foreign naval regime to help in averting decompression illness. So it maybe is not likely, but it still is possible when we consider um, what it is that's um, involved and who is involved. Right. And in those uh, in those examples that you just described, you know, I might be sitting listening to this and saying, "Well, we don't we don't send those that equipment overseas or to these countries." But there's there's such a thing, and I don't want to be getting ahead of you if if you're going this way. But as as deemed exports, where you might have somebody from a nation that is in a restricted nation, and that's a, a national. Uh, citizen from those nations, and if they're if they're working with these devices or have uh, knowledge about these devices, that could be a deemed export. Is, is, am I thinking along the right lines there? You, you certainly are, um, and and that is the issue um, with these types of items that are export controlled, and where an export could take place within the borders of the United States. And that is exactly what you described. It is a deemed export because it is deemed that that item or that information, which is normally going to require a license to send to an individual in their home country, it would likely require a license for them to have access to that information or that technology here in the United States. Because once that technology is given to that individual, you can't take it back. Right. What you you cannot unlearn what you've learned. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember once um, working with a client that um, they had a camera that the shutter speed or or something on the camera was so high tech. They were using it in a medical um, scenario, but the camera being used was so high tech that it was on one of these lists. And so, you know, as I brought that up, people thought, well, who would have ever thought that export controls is related to, to healthcare, but that was an example that I ran into. Is is that is that also a, um, an example that that is valid today? Yeah, very much so. And that's the thing behind um, understanding where the items you are working with, whether it be a piece of documentation or a piece of equipment, where they fall within the regulations. Um, that high-speed camera, like you had mentioned, that, depending on the frames per second, just to get a little technical, is where that characteristic of that item is making it fall within the regulation. Exactly. Um, but, to, but to just do a, a general search and say, oh, I'm looking for, this is actually a true story. When I was at uh, the University of Miami, I loved my little buyer because she was so good about trying to research the commerce control list and and try to tell me, oh, I see it's on the list. But she she sent me an email and said, 
I found this pneumatic um, hammer and it's, it's on the CCL. Are we still able to order it? So I'm like, pneumatic hammer, what are they doing? And I'm looking up what she, what she had identified and it's a pneumatic camera for um, construction equipment okay. for digging holes into the ground. And I said, well, what are you guys doing that you're ordering something like this? And she goes, well, the medical department is using it. They're going to be using it on, on cadavers. And I went, no, 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 that's not the same thing. Wow. <laughs> this is, that's going to be completely different. And so it was just a matter of the characteristics yes. of that item. So it, it does take some some training, some skill, I guess, and definitely some experience to make sure that what you're looking at is indeed the correct thing because you don't want to misclassify anything either. Um, that can get you into just as much trouble as ignoring something that may be controlled. Yeah. So the basic premise here is that if you have an item or a information or a service or something that is on a controlled list... There are procedures you have to follow uh, in order to um, safeguard that information or that item, right? And if you're going to disclose it or share it or ship it to certain places, you have to get licenses. So can you tell us a little bit about what some of those rules are? You mentioned CCL and EAR and those types of things. Can you maybe summarize some of those where healthcare folks might need to know where to look for some of those things? Um, yeah, it, a lot of it will depend on what are they doing. Um, we know uh, investigational new drugs, INDs, are um, they're, we typically see those under the Food and Drug Administration. Right. However, depending on the circumstances, the INDs may also be subject to the e, EAR. Um, so you may have to check both sets of regulations in order to discern whether or not that IND is going to be subject to the EAR as well as the FDA. And if they are, you may require authorization from both agencies that have jurisdiction over those regulations. Um, let's see, what else? Um, if you are, um, most medical equipment, I will say, uh, it, that is used for medical treatment or practice of medicine is typically not a problem. But that doesn't include items that might be associated with nuclear proliferation or chemical or biological weapons. Right. Um, and that can be a hard thing because um, the, the, the scientists could be looking at that as, well, it's a humanitarian effort. Right. And while that may be, you also have to look at what, what could happen if that item ends up in the wrong hands of somebody who has a malicious intent? Right. And so it's not necessarily about what you're doing, but who can take that and then apply it to something that may cause harm? Right. I mean, you might have a visiting um, scholar or a visiting prof medical professor from one of these countries, um, and and if they're doing research with those agents or with those items, you know, that kind of takes us back to that whole deemed export example. Exactly. Um, we Institutions um, of various sizes and colors and strengths all are usually getting pro propositioned from uh, foreign persons. Um, foreign persons are those who are not a U.S. citizen or not a U.S. permanent resident. 
if they're here in the United States on a visa, they're pretty much a, a foreign person. Um, that also goes for um, consulates um, um, and businesses who are not registered here in the United States. And so if those persons come to say, I want to sit with this particular professor for six months and, and study um, um, decompression syndrome, let's say, for example, right. that may be fine. But what, what is the background of that individual? Do you, you know, are they coming from, well, I work in um, environmental engineering and I want to learn about decompression syndrome. Right. I don't know enough about those two fields, but it doesn't seem like they're related. Right. <laughs> At the same time, uh, if, they, if there is some overlap that I'm unaware of, that's all great, but do you know that individual? Right. And is this somebody that you just met at a conference um, and uh, you want to help them out? All of that is good and fine, except you should do your due diligence and making sure that not only is the individual not appearing on a prohibited party list, but that any institution in which they're affiliated with is also not on a prohibited party list. Because remember, that affiliation, that's where the allegiance is too. And so that's where that foreign influence that we can, that we've been hearing a lot about, especially over the past year with the NIH memo, um, is what is is taking some concern as well. So make sure that you're doing your due diligence and checking these people out because once they do come into the United States, and you're sponsoring that visa or you're at least giving sponsoring them that ability to come and work at your institution, you are responsible. I have spoken with FBI agents who wanted to say the institution sponsored this person, where are they at? Right. And you have to go back then to that person who is supposed to be their supervisor. And often they're like, oh, I saw him once. So yeah, exactly. It, we really want to make sure the protocols are in place to, um, it's not that we have to keep a tight grip on them, but right. we do have to be accountable. Right. Absolutely. So all of those principles of a good compliance program really can come into effect here, right? Having good policies, doing training. Like I, in my limited exposure to expert controls and, and compliance rules that I've filled, most of it is just educating people. They had no clue that export controls had anything to do with what they were doing in their field or in their in their work. And so these elements of a compliance program of policies, training, maybe even audits, those are all types of things that you would recommend perhaps for export controls compliance programs? Uh, absolutely. I would say 90, uh, maybe 90% is too much. Yeah. Definitely <laughs> 80% of, of what you are going to do as a compliance professional is educate. Education, knowledge is power, right. I think is, is a quote someone had said. And if you don't have that knowledge, how can you expect people to do the right thing? Right. Uh, you know, a child is taught from their parents from the beginning what is right and what is wrong. And those moral codes then, you know, stay with them as they grow into adulthood and go on to do their own life. Exactly. It's the same thing here. If you do not educate and teach what is right and what is wrong, what you can and cannot do, um, or 
what we have to do in order for you to do X, Y, Z, then we can't get too upset when somebody turns around and and does something that they shouldn't have done. And that's one of the, the things about the regulations. And there, there's a lot there. There are thousands and thousands of pages, um, minor little notes, major notes. um, And you have to check all these things. And so, Accidents do happen and and people can make a mistake. And that doesn't mean that you will necessarily be prosecuted to the extent. Right. But you certainly have to do that investigation to say, how did this happen? And what are we going to do to ensure that it doesn't happen again? And if it is something that is gross, that that is a gross negligence, then um, you have to then go even further. What is the company's policies? What do the U.S. sentencing guidelines say? And you've got to make that voluntary self-disclosure. I know that makes people nervous about, oh, I don't know if I can do that. Exactly. But it, it's better that you, you are upfront with the government first about a mistake that happened and what you've done to rectify it. Yes. Rather than the government come knocking on your door saying, um, we'd like to look at your books and, oh, Please tell us about this situation. Yes. Well, so when that happens, it's too late. Exactly. And that's a principle that I find applies in all areas of compliance as I work with clients. So mm-hmm. not just export controls, but with billing issues or with HIPAA issues or any sort of mistake or, or non-compliance that may have taken place. If you can if you can uh, self-disclose, the, the results are typically better. You, you, I wanted to ask you a question about... Um, because you, you brought up kind of enforcement a little bit. Um, are there examples that you can think of where there has been a, an example or two of enforcement, maybe against a hospital or a physician or something, that there was some violation of export controls? Um, yeah, I think um, there's a case of Dr. Dr. Butler, Dr. Thomas Butler, and I think it happened around 2004. Uh, he was convicted on... Um, I think it was about 45, 47 counts of various criminal activities related to work that he was doing as a medical researcher at Texas Tech University. Um, and three of those counts were related to the transportation of a human plague bacteria that is controlled under the EAR. He ended up serving two years in prison and he had to pay a fine as well as restitution to Texas Tech. Um, Interesting. Let's see what else? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting one. So, in that, let me just ask you. In that one, the the issue was the research he was doing was using an agent that's on one of these uh, controlled lists. Is that right? That's correct. I believe actually that particular uh, bacteria. I could be wrong, but I believe that was also one of the select agents on the U.S. Select Agents Program. Oh wow. Um, and that list you can find on the uh, Center for Disease Control okay. uh, website. Um, I, I believe that that was the situation yeah. there. Interesting. Um, a little more recently, uh, and this was a case we brought up at that conference you and I attended, was uh, Mohammed Nazemzada, I believe is how we pronounce his name. I apologize if I did mispronounce that. He was prosecuted for attempting to send a coil for an MRI machine to his home country, which was Iran. And he was arrested in 2012, but in 2016, there was a 
a lot of changes to the regulations across many of the agencies. And because of those changes, which affected sanctions with Iran, those charges were dropped. Now, I have no idea where he's at today, but I'm certain that he's probably had some reputational damage done there. Yeah, so that was just a um, coil or a part for an MRI machine. Uh, so maybe the intentions mm -hmm. were good. We don't know, right? But they may have been good, right, to help some people in, in that country um, get better imaging uh, so they can have better medical care. But that still doesn't uh, absolve you from 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 that. Is that, am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, saying I didn't know can be a defense, but it's just not a good one. <laughs> a very good defense. Yeah. yeah, because you you get a license to drive. You are still responsible for understanding the laws of the road. Yes. And the same thing holds true here. You, um, you can put something in a box and you can send it out of the country, but that doesn't absolve you from understanding what other regulations or, or um, documentation need to be followed for sending that package out of the country. Oh, great example. You know, something we, did, something we haven't talked about, CJ, um, and I, I think it's worth mentioning, is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Okay. Uh, there's been an increase in U.S. enforcement actions of the FCPA based on the export of goods to countries subject to sanctions regulations and export controls. Ah, now, just to, yeah, just to explain briefly, though, what the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is, it has to do with bribery to foreign officials, foreign government officials. Right. So this is anything of value, which does not always mean money. It could be a lavish gift, a loan, a, a contribution of some sort, or even a title of honor. And it's, purpose is to obtain an unfair advantage. And that unfair advantage could be influencing an official act or decision, um, maybe retaining some sort of business or special tax or customs treatment and so forth. And so this law is written very broadly and it can affect U.S. persons and businesses wherever they are located. That's right. And just a few years ago, Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, Yes, they paid nearly $520 million, that's M, million, for its role for violations with the FCPA. And I believe their schemes involved Russia, Ukraine, and Mexico. So the compliance program is important. It doesn't matter whether it's putting something in a box and shipping it overseas or what are relationships and transactions that we're having with non-U.S. persons, right? Um, wherever they may be located. So yeah, it's it's an important thing. And that's a really good example. I spent a lot of my compliance career dealing in FCPA compliance, and in healthcare in particular, a lot of us don't recognize that in other parts of the world, physicians can be deemed as government officials under FCPA because. In many parts of the world, there's socialized yep. medicine. And so the, the, the hospitals owned by the government or the, the doctor is an employee of the government. Um, and that's not as common here in the U.S. And so a lot of people, medical device companies, pharmaceutical companies, as you mentioned, um, they, they can sometimes forget that fact and think, oh, government official. That's just if I'm meeting with the secretary of state. No, um, government official can be broadly defined, and in healthcare, it can include a lot of these healthcare providers. So I'm glad you brought that example up. Yeah, and 
a, a government official can even be the secretary. That's right. You know, it's, it's, it, it, we, we have to be cognizant of who we're talking to, who we're engaging with, what information we're sharing, because it only takes one small piece of that puzzle. You don't have to give them the entire puzzle. Right. If all they take is that one little piece, they'll go to somebody else, they'll get another piece from them, and so on and so forth, and then they will eventually get that entire piece uh, that entire puzzle together yeah. and see the big picture. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's, that's another thing. Yeah, let me ask you one other kind of specific question. I've heard this example used, and I don't know if it's out of date. Maybe you can shed some light. Um, a lot of people talk about, look, if you're bringing your laptop and it has encryption software on it, and let's say you're going to a conference to China or maybe you're going to a conference in Iran or something. It might be a medical conference, but you're a doctor and you're going. Are there certain common devices like that, like encryption software that a lot of us have on computers that are on this list? Or is that kind of an outdated example? No, I, I would say it's not outdated, but there is certainly better flexibility than there was maybe okay. 15 years ago. Okay. Um, however, there is a, a lot of businesses, um, regardless of the field, and especially with healthcare, where you've got to worry about HIPAA, um, right. many businesses are employing a program called Duo, and it's for dual authentication in order to gain access into that business's network. Well, Duo... Um, recently updated their end-user license agreement, okay. and it now specifically states that you cannot export that that software to a prohibited country. Oh. And so even and so even though the software, which is a form of cryptography, it encrypts your device so that you can gain access securely. Um, even though it is what we call on the EAR, it's classified as EAR-99. Right. That software cannot be taken. And so if you have a um, um, scientist at your facility who is an Iran national and they go home to visit family, right. they cannot have that Duo software installed on their device. Ah. A good rule of thumb, though, is if you don't need it, don't take it. Yeah, exactly. Um, you you um, take a what they call a clean device. A clean device does not have all the bells and whistles, the encryption controls. It's not going to have your passwords, your bookmarks, or any of that stuff, but it will have the basics enough for you to be able to um, uh, check your email uh, or do basic functions like that. And then when the, when the device comes back to the United States, uh, re-image it, take it back to factory default settings, and start fresh. Many organizations, IT departments, are employing um, this kind of practice for those persons that they do that, have, that travel to right. high-risk countries like China um, and the other parts of the Middle East. Right. Um, I also recommend um, don't take your only copy. <laughs> Things happen. Yes. Um, and I cannot tell you how many times decades ago when I would go through the, the x-ray scanner at the airport and my entire Palm Pilot, that's how far back we're going, right. got erased. 
Oh my goodness. And I still keep paper copies to this day, but it's still something accidents do happen. So also do not take your only copy when you travel. That is great advice, Wendy. We're, we're out of time now. Obviously, you and I could talk about this all day. I do want to offer you, though, <laughs> an opportunity to, I, I know, you know, we, we can probably include this on the link um, in the, the short description of the, the podcast, but would you mind sharing um, either a phone number or a website or an email that, that if, if listeners do want additional help, it, it sounds like your consulting company could, could do some of that. Is, is there a way for people to contact you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if anyone is ever feeling overwhelmed and not even sure where to start, that's okay. Sometimes you just need to talk things through with someone who's experienced and can take an unbiased view of things. So they can reach out to me. My direct email address is wendy at epleyconsulting.com. And uh, I'm usually pretty responsive, I think. So, yeah, they can give me a call. Great. And I think we can include that in in, the... in the brief description when, when people are listening to the podcast. Wendy, thank you so much for your, sure. your expertise and, and sharing what you know about this really important um, topic. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much, CJ. I appreciate you allowing me to be a part of your program today. All right. And all, to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Uh, until next time, uh, have a great day. Bye-bye. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.